0: That's performance artist Meredith Monk. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. It's one thing to stake out innovative artistic terrain when you're 20, and quite another to consistently push creative boundaries for over 45 years with work that continues to be fresh, authentic, and innovative. Yet that describes the career of performance artist Meredith Monk. A pioneer in what's now called extended vocal technique, Meredith Monk moves among the disciplines of voice, dance, theater, and film with fluidity and ease. She's a composer, singer, choreographer, and director. She creates opera, theater, films, and installations. Admired by critics and audiences alike, Meredith Monk never loses her power to enchant and to surprise. She once said, I work in between the cracks, where the voice starts dancing, where the body starts singing, where the theater becomes cinema. I spoke with Meredith Monk in her small country home, so you'll hear the occasional car as well as the welcome sound of the heat coming up during that cold autumn day. I wanted to know what first drew her to multidisciplinary performance.
1: Well, I think my childhood was interdisciplinary because I came from a musical background. My mother was a singer on radio, and her father was a concert-based baritone who had come from Russia in the, uh, around 1890, but he sang in New York at Brooklyn Academy and Carnegie Hall, and he also had uh, a music conservatory in, in Washington Heights, and his father had been a cantor from uh, from Russia. So that was my a music background, and then my early training... In music was also Delcroze Eurythmics, which has a movement component because I had a visual challenge. So you know I wasn't physically that coordinated. So I think my mother had heard about Dalcros Eurythmics which usually is for children to learn music through their bodies, but it was really for me to learn my body through music. <laughs> so very simple kinds of coordinations like skipping and you know and hopping. And rhythmically, I had a natural sense of rhythm and, and had a musical ear, so it was a wonderful beginning. I always tell people that are starting their children music training that, in my opinion, Dalcro's or something like that is a great way to start children. So that was already, you could say, two art forms, some movement and music. And then I really loved theater as a child, so um, you know I was in plays and everything. So I think that that was something that I just had these different interests. And then when I went to Sarah Lawrence, I designed my own program in what was called combined performing arts. So by, by my senior year, I was allowed to do that, my my last year. And then so I was in the uh, voice department. I was in doing opera workshop. I was in theater department and dance department. And so I was making pieces of my own that were already starting to combine different elements.
0: When you came
1: to New York, when you first
0: started out in the 1960s, what was New York City like then?
1: Well, it was a great time to come because I was very affirmed in some of my, what would I say, my attempts to weave these different elements together and uh, my glimpses at the possibility of what a unified form could be there were many people that were trying to break through the boundaries of their individual art forms. There were a lot of visual artists that were doing dance pieces and poets that were writing music and and musicians were, you know, making plays. And, you know, there was a lot of questioning about what are the boundaries of these different art forms. And then I think a lot of people after that period went back to their original art form, but maybe with a new sense of richness because they had explored having no boundaries to what that form could be. So it was very much against definition. There wasn't anything is possible kind of attitude, especially in this in this world, which was a more downtown kind of world. And all the artists from the different disciplines were in contact with each other. There was really a kind of community of exploration and experimentation. I think it's very different now. But for me, I, you know, as I say, I had glimpsed these things when I was in school, and so then what was going on in New York when I first came was very affirmative for my you know explorations.
0: How did you begin to develop
1: extended vocal technique? Well, you know, coming from a singer's background, it's always hard to find your spot. It's <laughs> so, I, you know, I had I had been a folk singer during the time I was in school and you know, earned money at children's birthday parties, you know, and, you know, helped myself get through school by doing singing, folk singing. And I had had piano from the time I was three years old, so I had come from somewhat a Western classical tradition, but much more of folk music. I always loved folk music. So then in at Sarah Lawrence, I was in the voice department, and I was learning the classical tradition, leader, and opera. And somehow I just knew that I was not going to be an interpreter. I just knew from the time I was maybe 13 or 14 that I wanted to create. That was all I knew. I didn't know in what form or anything. But I mean, I had that feeling that somehow I had to find my own way. Because I remember a dance teacher one time telling my, my mother, well, she's not going to be a ballet dancer because her temperament is not right. I would also say my body was not right, but, but I, it was more a temperament thing. And I, I realized that, yes, I was already starting to try to make things. And so when I first came to New York, my pieces were more gesture-oriented, a little bit of voice, but not, not that extensive. about a year or so of being in New York and I was performing a lot my own work and then a lot of people wanted me to perform in their pieces not dance pieces it was much more the visual artists that were doing more theatrical kind of pieces and so I loved I loved doing that so then I was missing really singing really singing singing not just a little bit of, of voice work here and there so I started going back to the piano and just vocalizing regular western European vocalizing and then one day I had a kind of revelation that the voice could be An instrument that it could be a nonverbal instrument because of course I was very comfortable with nonverbal communication coming also from movement that I could work with my voice the way that I had with my body and as a choreographer in at school because of my physical limitations in a way it was to my advantage because I I had to find my own vocabulary very idiosyncratic vocabulary so I knew how to work with my own physical instrument and so I applied some of those principles to working with my voice and then I also, at that day that I had this revelation, which, you know, you, sometimes you have those eureka moments that change your life forever. So I also realized that within the voice could be landscape, could be character, male and female, age, different textures, different colors, different ways of producing sound. That was one thing. And, and also that I had the sense that it was a very ancient, very ancient. And at the same time, I felt that I was coming back to my family, but in my own way, like coming back to what I was meant to do coming back to my own blood, but in, in, in my own way. That day changed my life because I had already done pieces that were these multimedia pieces. So I really was in some ways, I was young. I mean, I was 23 or 24 years old, but I had done pretty complex pieces. I had already done 16 millimeter earrings, which was a big breakthrough piece for me. So I knew how to make a work and, and what that took. And yet with the voice, it was like, That was the missing piece, you know, that was the missing piece, and that missing piece became the heart and the center of my work. I I felt that I was meant to do it. I felt that I was born to do it.
0: You tend to avoid actual words. You focus instead on syllables.
1: What do you think that gives you as a performer? In folk music, I enjoyed the words. I enjoyed telling stories. But there was just something that I knew that the words would actually get in the way of this very primal kind of power that the voice had, and I felt that... Right away, from as, I, as I started working, and the first thing I explored vocally was my range, like how far high and how far low I could pull it. And I had, because of my background, a much more virtuosic vocal instrument. I did not have a physically virtuosic instrument. I had a lot of challenges, physical challenges, but I had to use my wits to find my own style. But by taking the same approach to my voice, I had an instrument that had many, many possibilities. So that was just a fantastic thing. So the first thing I did was stretch my range high and low, and then I started working with, in, in a sense, you could say, kind of kinetic ways of thinking about the voice, like what would a spiral of the voice be or what would f- a, a falling voice, you know, glissando, and, or what would a jumping voice be, you know. In a way, it was a visceral, kind of physical way of dealing with the voice.
0: Do you remember your first performance in New York where you brought it all together?
1: Well, 16 millimeter earrings, I had already brought... Some very simple vocal piece called Nota and I had sung Greensleeves, you know So I was really trying to pull in my music and my folk music into this piece And that was the first time that I'd really done extensive singing and made a whole score for a music piece But a few months later when I really had this revelation That's when I really started exploring what the possibilities of the human voice could be and very deeply and the first piece that I Really worked on you know where I was really you know working with this vocal style was called duet for voice and echoplex and my cousin Daniel Zellman was a sound engineer and he had done some of my sound work and he had something that was an early echo chamber device that was called an echoplex it was this little box and we did a duet where I was singing really extreme and he would record it and then distort it by this echoplex and then later on the whole piece was called blueprint he played that back and then I sang against that. So that was the first real kind of um extended kind of vocal piece that I did and that would have been 1967.
0: In 1969, the Guggenheim Museum, and you presented Juice. Juice. (laughs) How did you get the Guggenheim Museum to agree to allow you to do this
1: performance? I was on my hands and knees, and I did everything in my power. I think I was 25 or 26 years old at that time to make this happen, and uh, there were all kinds of things like, we are don't have insurance, and I said, oh, we'll all wear rubber soles, and I mean, I'm not the, I, w- I was like, you know, if you see some of my letters, it's like, sometimes I just have to go back to the letters to have that courage again, you know, now where I doubt myself, I'm like, what about that young woman who you know, got the Guggenheim Museum, go back to her, where, what happened to her?
0: Okay, tell me about the inspiration for Juice. How did it come together?
1: Well... I had already started getting very interested in in working on on what is now called site-specific performance. So in 1967, in this blueprint piece, I had done it upstate in Woodstock, New York, and part of it was outdoors, and it was I had the audience down at the bottom of this building, and all the events took place through the windows. So I was really exploring other spaces than a theatrical space because I just was getting bored with that kind of frontal kind of presentation. So I was working on big choral music pieces and very simple movements and the architecture really determined what the structure was. So the Guggenheim was kind of a culmination of of exploring these different spaces. In all those those site specific pieces, I was thinking a lot about the relationship between the audience and performers and kind of reversing it. How I had the audience moving, the performers were still. It kind of reversed the relationship of audience and performers. So I started thinking about different relationships, also distance, you know, how close you were to performers, how far away you know almost like a camera lens going in and out I think my impulse and still is is how do you subvert something <laughs> i feel like i still have that spirit it's, some of that spirit that's so, interesting cuz i just wrote disruption yeah or just, subversion yeah. i would yeah. say would be you know a little less violent well, although disruption is fine but you know it's probably at that time it was more disruption now it's more subversion but uh, well it's more this idea of subversion of habitual behavior and from a spiritual point of view now being a little bit more aware of it when we all subvert our own habitual behavior we're much more open to the moment and and we're much more open to all the moments in our lives so to me that's a strategy in art you know is how do you subvert these things we just take for granted or our habits that are you know we're basically asleep you know we're not aware of these habits and so in art i think art can open you up to waking up to what these things are that close you off from the moment so you know i think maybe i just intuitively knew that now i'm a little bit more aware of it So another thing I was really trying to subvert was the notions of time. How would you have a more experiential idea of a live situation? And time became something that was very interesting. One thing I explored a lot was performing at different times of the day. But this other idea that I did for Juice was what would happen if you had a piece that actually took place in three different times and your memory of the piece was part of your of your present, of, of experiencing it. We did two performances at the Guggenheim Museum. And that was a piece that had about 85 people in it. And it was a big pageant. And um, it also had three parts to it within it, which I'll, I'll go into later. But it was really more spectacle and kind of supernatural. I mean, it was so... Airy and uh, elegant and and all the beautiful echo in that room, and you know and using that architecture as a structure of the piece.
0: I just want to describe the Guggenheim Museum for people who might not know it. It's cylindrical in shape. From the street, the building looks like a multi-layered cake that's slightly wider on the top than on the bottom. And on the inside, the viewing gallery forms this spiral from the main level up to the top of the building. I guess you think of a corkscrew. Essentially, it's this continuous ramp that spirals around an open court up to a domed skylight. So a part of all the floors can be visible at any point, and the paintings are displayed along the walls of the spiral.
1: Yes. <laughs> I just want to tell you the overall structure of Juice, and then yeah. I'll go back to the Guggenheim. It was called Juice, Colin a theater cantata, and three installments. So you got a ticket that allowed you to come to all three installments, So the first installment was the Guggenheim. Then a month later, you know, the second installment was at the Minor Latham Playhouse, which is part of Barnard University, and I was very much working with making conscious what this proscenium arch kind of situation is, which is, you know, in some ways kind of like a giant puppet show, but, you know, I mean, just what is this frame that, again, we take for granted when we go to see something that has that frontal orientation, so I was really emphasizing that after having done a 360-degree piece at the Guggenheim where it was so sculptural. So here I was, I was working more pictorially, and then f- there were only nine people in the cast, and so it went from 85 to nine. But the four main characters in this 85-performer pageant of Juice were these four people that were painted red from head to toe and with red garments, red hair, red, everything bright red. And they became the main characters in the second part of the piece, and then there were a few other people that were in that. So it was like the zoom lens went in on those four characters. And then two weeks after that was a show in a a gallery. It was my own loft, but it was really designed to be like a kind of gallery installation. That was the third installment. And that had all the 85 costumes from the Guggenheim, all the 85 Jews harps from the Guggenheim, the 85 red combat boots from the Guggenheim, all the uh, objects from the second part. And then it had on one end a little room, like a living room, that the audience could sit in. In the second part in the in the, uh, Minor Life and Playhouse, there was a little room in the back of the stage that kept on being revealed more and more where the musician was sitting in this little room. So that little room became what you sat in in the third part. So you could sit in that living room and you could watch a videotape And it was black and white. It was very early video of the four red people that were painted red, but now you just saw their faces on the screen shot very close as if the TV monitor was like a head or something like that. And you just saw their faces. And they were doing little interviews about their lives. So you pulled in closer to those people. And then all the objects and costumes from the first two installments were all over the, the loft. And you could go very close to them and touch them and smell them, but there were no performers in that installment. So it was this idea of going closer and closer on one hand, and then, ironically, there were no performers. So that was kind of the idea, that you took your, the memory of what you had experienced, and then somehow that got changed or modified by the next installment. So that was the idea of the piece. That was an experience. <laughs> that was one idea of the piece. What an undertaking yeah. that was. Oh, you know. Well, I just did um, something two years ago at the Guggenheim again in 2009 and I was wondering whether I still had it in me to do that. I was like, I don't know. But then it ended up being so incredible. It was I called it Ascension Variations, and that was from my new, newer piece that was called Songs of Ascension. but it had a little threads of juice going through it because we were talking with the curator, Alexandra Monroe, about how wonderful it would be to have a few historical little strands going through the piece, and the structure was exactly the same as juice. But, I mean, it was a totally different piece, but the structure was the same. And what I mean by that is that the first part of the Guggenheim piece, both juice and Ascension Variations, I had the audience sitting on the floor looking up. We had cushions on the floor, and... All the events went on in the spiral of the Guggenheim. And what was really beautiful about it is that these events would just be coming from these layers or levels of the spiral, and you never knew when the, where or when the next thing would be coming from. That was so beautiful, and that, that was the same thing with Juice. It was so, you'd hear sometimes a sound before you'd see an image, because you only saw an image when the performers were right up by the balcony for me that was so great to work with that thing of disappearance and appearance and then I always have to laugh because I I said well you know you didn't see this cuz you were down on the floor but there was another piece going on up on those stairs you know what once you were not at the balcony you didn't you couldn't see us but we were running to get to our next entrance so there were guards we were jumping over the guards and you know there was like a whole different piece going on up there to be able to make that thing happen where you didn't know where the next thing was coming from
0: a little bit like noises off
1: oh it was <laughs> so great and then the second part again both of juice and and, and uh, ascension variations I had the audience walking up the ramp or walking down the ramp, so you could take the elevator up to the top or you could walk from the bottom up. And then in the Little Alcoves, there were, I think, about 20 events going on. You know, it was spread out all over the spiral. You'd come very close to the performers and you could choose to stay with them for a while or walk to the next gallery. But the thing that was different with, with Ascension Variations and Juice, which I was very proud of, was that in Juice... There were some vocal components, but it was more like movement components. But this time I took one of the pieces from Songs of Ascension and I orchestrated it in such a way that the string quartet and all the singers were really spread out all over the whole building. And we could take the phrases from that piece and we could perform them in any order that we wanted to. And so it became another composition. It was so beautiful. And and, and that was a half an hour period that the audience could walk up and down and so it became this beautiful extended variation of the piece and what happened was that the whole building all sounded like a sound tunnel and or like a giant vocal cord you know it was kind of like the whole building became like a, a giant vocal cord and the composition just it was just so beautiful and very surprising for me i don't think my structural thing in music hasn't ever been as, as quite as open-ended as that i mean it was all material that i had made but it was like how it was put together was different in both the performances because each performer could choose a kind of repertoire of these phrases and then put them together in any order that they wanted to and the strings of the string quartet were separated so you know there was a violin and what you know maybe down near the bottom and the cello was like two levels up and then the other violin was way up at the top I mean it was fantastic and there had been a chorus also in Ascension Variations that I got from the Montclair State University and there were 90 singers in this chorus And that was the same thing that happened in Juice. In Juice, there were 85 people doing this little juice harp thing. In Ascension Variations, it was a a beautiful choral piece that not only were we singing and moving, but all the 90 people from that chorus were, you'd be up on the top of a balcony and all of a sudden this incredible bass would be right next to you singing. So, you know, it was like the chorus was integrated with the audience. It was just, it was so beautiful. I mean, I just, I have to say that at the very end, we lie on the the floor and we were looking up at the audience and I just thought, you know, maybe this is it. I could just stop after, I don't know if it could be better than this. I mean, we only had two performances, it was such a shame. But, you know, I thought, this is as good as it gets. it was great is
0: there a moment between finishing a piece and starting a new one that feels does it feel like oh it's exciting the whole world is in front of you or can it feel
1: daunting or is it both i think it's you know depends you know sometimes it's daunting you know like now what you know it has that quality sometimes it just has an incredible feeling i mean we were lucky enough that we were going to perform songs of ascension the real Songs of Ascension that I had also created for Anne Hamilton's Tower, you know, before I did Ascension Variations. Uh, that was, um, I finished that in the fall of 2008. And we were very much looking forward to doing Songs of Ascension in its, you know, what I call its classical form at BAM, you know, which we did at the Harvey Theater. And that was beautiful on another level. It was so magical. I love that space, and I had always wanted to clean the whole space out. I love the back wall, and so just have this... Magical space and Songs of Ascension was a perfect piece to do that with. And so that had a different kind of magic. So that was good. I mean, sometimes it's really hard, you know. I feel like I'm in a period like that a little bit now. I have to start a new piece and to get the momentum. I think that sometimes before you have that question or before you really know what a piece is demanding of you or what the world of that piece is going to be, it feels always this kind of slightly fragmented quality of, you know, maybe having a lot of different ideas, or not really any ideas that you can get your fingers on, and then you got to wait. I always say it's it's like throwing seeds into the garden, and then some things take and some things don't take. So it's a little disconcerting, you know, before those seeds take, like, what am I doing? That always ends up being pretty terrifying. I mean, I've been working over 45 years, and I'm still scared to death every time. But I think that's part of it. It's like, let yourself be afraid, because if you're not, then you're just doing something you already know. What's the point of doing it if you already know it? It's better to do something you don't know. And just have to kind of have the confidence, and it it's becomes a more and more a matter of faith that this world that already exists is going to reveal itself to you, and, and the process will also reveal itself to you. So it's, it's really faith.
0: Along the same line, does faith let you know when a piece is finished?
1: That's such a good question. I always think about that with painters. I always ask them, like, how do you know that that's your last stroke and that your next stroke is not going to ruin it? I think that one of the great things about live performance is that you can ruin it, but then you can go back to what you had before. I think in painting you can't, and sometimes in film you can't because it's so much money to go back to what you had before. But with live performance, that's what I actually love very much about it, is that you always get another chance. You get a chance the next night. So once I even open a piece, I'm still working on it. I'm still, still working on it. We're still seeing how is it going to grow. It's like a, a child. You know, it, it, organically, the more you perform it, the more it grows. Then sometimes it will grow into a direction where you've lost a little bit of what you had as your intention in the first place, and you have to decide to go back to that or to stay with where it's gone. Because sometimes you might have lost the essence a little bit of something.
0: It always strikes me that to be someone who is truly innovative, you need so much more discipline than someone who goes along a more traditional path.
1: I think that it's a different kind of discipline. Um, I I remember one time, I think it was the, the early 90s, talking with a tea ceremony master in Japan. And we were talking about how within a tradition like that, Every step along the way is mapped out. You know, you, you're learning this tradition and you're really following that with all your heart. And so you, you, you know what your path is. But with my kind of work, you know, we're in a way, you, you're trying to follow a path and try to hear what that path is asking from you. And it hasn't been charted before. <laughs> so in between inspirations, it gets to be a little lonely and, you know, and maybe sometimes, you know, a little scary. <laughs> you know for me it's been more trying to to go back to the center of you know my existence and and try to hear what my next step would be you know that's that's been my my way of it, really trying to listen very deeply to what the next step of my path is going to be because each each step is a new step you know what i've tried to do is that each piece i do i i, I try to start from zero in every piece with no assumptions um you know beginner's mind as i would say in zen buddhism and so then it's a matter of working through my fear and anxiety um, each time. But it's always the way of going through that fear and anxiety comes out to be when you find one little clue or, you know, one little question. When you find w- what your question is, then the curiosity sort of overtakes that the fear. And then, you know, you're basically on the path of that world that you're trying to listen to. It's hard to talk about these things, actually. But, but it, yeah. it's
0: very interesting when you talk about listening to that path or to what the path wants from you. Mm-hmm. Because when I think of your work, one of the things I think about is how aptly you use silence in it. Mm-hmm. And I cannot help but think it has to do with the way you process the work.
1: I think um silence is just another part of music or of sound and stillness is another part of movement so you know you're always getting emptiness and fullness or you know in tai chi you'd say full leg empty leg you know you're always going between those two parts of the same whole and the contrast between those two things I think makes both of them clearer let me ask
0: you this, Meredith, because you've also done commissioned pieces. Mm-hmm. You've done them for the New World Symphony. Yes. As I recall, your opera atlas was commissioned by the Houston Opera Company. Grand
1: Opera, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and now I'm um, St. Louis Symphony. And the St. Louis Symphony. And now my commission that I'm working on now is for San Francisco Symphony for Michael Tilson Thomas. Yeah. What's the difference between doing a commissioned piece and not? I i am not a good commission person to be totally honest I really have a hard time with it I just don't work on schedule very well that way and the way that I've been trying to think of it so that I don't really start getting so upset that I can't work is that I find that every time I do take a commission and it's only been those have been my only commissions I really start thinking about it as an incredible way of stretching myself and learning like the New World Symphony, I mean, I had never done a piece for orchestra in my entire life. Atlas was 11 instruments. It was 18 singers, but it was 11 instruments. It was not a big orchestra piece. The, the New World Symphony was the full orchestra, which was like almost 90 people. And I really didn't know how to work with it. I mean, I was very overwhelmed by it and terrified. But again, what I always say is it's a step-by-step kind of thing. And then, And at a certain point, you become very curious ab- about something. And at that point, you dive in, and, you know, the fear starts going away, and you start getting really interested, and that's the that's switch over. And so, you know, I learned so much about the colors of instruments and the voices of instruments, and then that could go right back into the, my work with my own ensemble, because I have you know, really three instrumentalists on the ensemble. Um, John Hollenbeck, a wonderful um, percussionist. Bodan Hillish, who's a wonderful reed player, plays many, many different instruments from the highest little flute down to bass saxophone. And then Alison Sniffen, who is one of our singers, but also plays piano, French horn, violin, you know. So I started thinking about how I could think about instruments as voices. I'd always thought of voices as instruments, and now I could start thinking about the colors of instruments as voices. And so how I try to you know not be overwhelmed by these tasks or it's almost like giving myself an assignment it's a way I can learn things that I would have never never in a million years learned and that's how I try to think about it and then I try not to take too many of them you know because it I do find it very difficult I'm a person that works much more from the inside out there are some people who won't write one note if they're not commissioned. You know, that's a very different way of thinking about things. But for me, I, I find that I have so much inner pressure that the outside pressure gets to be double pressure. So I try to just think about it. This is something where you can really learn and grow.
0: For Kronos,
1: for the
0: New World Symphony, clearly for the opera, there are other singers who are going to be singing your work. And right. I would imagine it would be difficult to sing your work. <laughs>
1: harder than it seems. If you look at the page uh, instrumentalists and singers just think oh I can read this down and then I'm always saying you know I don't think so. (laughs) It might look like that but once you try to sing it it's so much more complicated than you would imagine. It's very very intricate and there are certain principles of music that it won't really come to life unless you understand these principles and those are not necessarily on the page and that's why it ends up being quite complex to think about what my legacy will be that's why i've always said that well i I actually think that my main legacy will come from the oral tradition of people that have sung my work and pass it on and then um, i am with boozy and hawk so little by little i've been trying to pull together scores that i think are are something that can be done by other people like say choral pieces seem more possible than some of certainly my solos cannot either have to be passed on person by person or not done at all The the ensemble, I have these wonderful singers in the ensemble, and they are very good at teaching some of this material to other people. A notable exception having somebody perform your work that you liked was Björk. I I really like what Björk did with um, Gotham Lullaby because what she did with it was she kept the essence of the feeling of the piece but she did find her own way. She wasn't just imitating the way I did it, and yet the parameters weren't so far away from Gotham Lullaby that it was unrecognizable. So in other words, I think that sometimes the misunderstanding is that it's a free-for-all, so it never is. My work is, is really a combination of discipline and freedom within small parameters. Very specific, it's very specific what I'm looking for, but I think with her, what she ended up doing was She kept the integrity of the feeling of the piece and yet didn't try to follow exactly what I was doing note by note. And so I I thought that it really worked out really well.
0: So it's more about the spirit to which one approaches the music.
1: Yes, it is. And it's a kind of state of mind. I mean, there are these sounds that I'm going for that really have to do with the the sound world that has revealed itself to me. And that's how I find my syllables. Um, You know, the syllables or the phonemes come very much from... A certain sound world that I'm trying to create. So it's as I'm not trying to say that every time I do it, it's completely different. But within that sound might be another variation. And I think that when you codify something, it's always going to be exactly the same. It's just like everything else in life, it becomes a commodity. And, you know, I'm very much against that. Let's hear it for mystery and a little bit of humility in relation to, you know, what's given to us.
0: Meredith, what do you want to give your audience?
1: I want to give them an an experience that's very full perceptually, you know, where they really feel the richness of their own perceptual makeup, you know, that their ears, eyes, feelings, intelligence, bodies, souls are nourished in some way so that there could maybe have some moments where. They can drop the narrator in their minds or the or what we call um discursive thinking in their minds and have that sense of being completely present and uh, present and aware of larger and fundamental energies that have always existed. So I want it to be very experiential and very rich in feeling, and hopefully it moves people to think about living in a different way and seeing things that one might take for granted in a different way. And maybe in this world that is so full of distraction, and the whole culture is so much about distraction, about, you know, not concentrating, about diversion, entertainment, maybe people would have for a moment a little bit of a rest period from that and get back to themselves, you know, the fundamental kind of aspects of themselves as beings, and that hopefully it would be restful in some way, and that would hopefully would wake people up a little bit to the moment.
0: And what is it you want from the audience?
1: What I love about the live performance is that we're all in the same place at the same time, and that there's a kind of figure eight or an infinity sign of energy that's going from us to the audience and back from the audience to us, and that there's this kind of exchange of energy. I think that there's there can be nothing better. Meredith Monk, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: That was performance artist Meredith Monk, who continues to create work that resists category. And if you're interested in art that defies category, check out the new issue of NEA Arts, which celebrates innovation. Go to arts.gov and click on NEA Arts for the full issue and special web features, including Meredith Monk's thoughts on innovation as well as slides of her at work. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Duet for Voice and Echoplex from the CD Beginnings, used courtesy of Meredith Monk and Zadic Records. Excerpts from Porch from the CD Key, used courtesy of Meredith Monk and Lovely Music. And excerpts from The Following, all used courtesy of Meredith Monk and ECM Records. Gotham Lullaby from the CD Dolman Music, performed by Meredith Monk. Ascent and Summer Variation from the CD Songs of Ascension, performed by Meredith Monk, the Todd Reynolds Quartet, the M6, and the Montclair State University Singers. Travel Dream Song from the Opera Atlas, Wayne Hankin Conductor. All music composed by Meredith Monk. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Robert Battle, the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, takes center stage. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog, or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.